American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the influenza pandemic of 1918, sometimes called the Spanish flu, and how the Archdiocese of Philadelphia responded. The influenza pandemic of 1918 was a terrible global disease, and we're seeing a lot of parallels to that period of history today. Yeah, it's weird to live through something like this because it's easy to think that we have stuff like disease conquered or all figured out. And that mass sickness is just a thing from distant history, but we don't, and it's not. Right. And even the things that the government and health authorities told people to do back 100 years ago are happening again. Right. Since there was no known cure for the 1918 flu, the authorities were telling people to maintain good hygiene, wash their hands, keep their distance from one another, avoid gatherings, and use good disinfecting cleaners on all surfaces. Sounds familiar. Uh, It does. and I mean, advances in medicine may give us a better chance to test definitively for the virus, to develop a vaccine, and to help people survive. But those preventive measures and even some treatments haven't really changed. So let's talk about the pandemic of 1918, and let's start with why it's called the Spanish flu. Right. So this was during World War I. The flu was spreading in many places, but no nations wanted to admit that the disease had spread within their own countries for fear of appearing weak during the Great War. So no one was being honest about how widespread it was becoming. Right. Then the king of Spain got ill with this disease. And since Spain was officially neutral in the war, they had no problem being upfront about their flu numbers. So it was convenient for everyone else to just start calling it the Spanish flu So they could all make it seem like this flu came from Spain and certainly not that they had had a significant outbreak in their own countries already. But truth be told, it was everywhere and its exact origin is impossible to nail down. When the whole pandemic finally ran its course by the end of 1920, 500 million people around the globe had contracted the disease and about 50 million died. So calling it Spanish flu was all a propaganda thing? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so the influenza pandemic of 1918. What was the timeline of this flu in the U.S.? Well, this particularly virulent and aggressive flu was first detected in the U.S. in March of 1918 at an army base in Kansas. See, the U.S. entered World War I in 1917 and quickly instituted a draft. So suddenly, hundreds of thousands of soldiers from all over the country were training at a handful of bases across the country. We started sending troops over to Europe in June of 1917, so some who had come back may well have brought the virus with them. A few hundred soldiers fell ill at that base in Kansas, but the spread was mostly contained. Only about 40 soldiers died. The next big outbreak was in September of 1918, this time at Fort Devens, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and at a naval facility in Boston. This time, the spread was not contained well. More than 14,000 soldiers at Fort Devens came down with the flu, with 757 dying. Well, on a personal note, Fort Devens is actually where my grandfather served as commissary officer for a number of years, but well after this. Yeah, and as the war was winding down and the armistice to end the fighting was signed on November 11, 1918, more and more troops were brought home. 
and they undoubtedly brought even more of the flu back with them and then went back to all of their homes all across the country where there were celebrations, parades, and other gatherings. Right, an epidemiologist's nightmare scenario. So between September and November of 1918, the virus spread across the country and killed many, many Americans. In October of 1918 alone, 195,000 Americans died from this flu. All told, this flu epidemic killed 675,000 Americans between January of 1918 and December of 1920. So while the Wuhan coronavirus is bad, and we do need to take preventative measures to minimize the loss of life at this stage, we really don't have the scope of carnage that these sort of diseases can cause. No, and by God's mercy and with modern medical advances, we won't know death on that scale. So let's talk about a city in the United States that was particularly hard hit, Philadelphia. Yes, so Philadelphia had its share of international maritime activity with the shipyards, the Navy Yard, and the port. So it had sailors who had been in Boston, people from Europe, and people from other parts of the U.S. And many had brought the flu with them. Yes, and it was on September 28, 1918, that the city of Philadelphia went forward with a massive military parade. The purpose of the parade was twofold. One, to keep up morale as the war dragged on in Europe, and two, to sell war bonds to fund the war effort. The disease had already manifested in Philadelphia, and there had been the big outbreak in Boston. There were plenty of people saying that Philadelphia should not have gone forward with the parade, but they did it anyhow. And the result was deadly. 200,000 people came out to the parade, cramming Broad Street in Philly, shoulder to shoulder, coughing and sneezing, shaking hands, touching the same surfaces, wiping their noses and breathing the same air. Within three days, 72 hours, every single bed in Philadelphia's 31 hospitals had a body in it, many of them dying. On October 3rd, the city ordered every business closed and every public event canceled. By Saturday, October 5th, 2,600 people had died. On Sunday, October 6th, 1918, that was the first Sunday since Catholics had first arrived in Philadelphia hundreds of years earlier that Mass was not offered publicly. A week later, the number dead exceeded 4,500, and that's only in a two-week span. The city and its hospitals just were not prepared to handle this epidemic. That was in part because so many medical professionals, including nurses, had been pressed into military service and had been sent to bases in the U.S. and overseas. So there was a severe shortage in the city already. Right. And this is where the church really stepped up to help as they were able. Right. The new Archbishop of Philadelphia, Dennis Doherty, had only been installed as Archbishop in July of 1918. He quickly made schools and other church facilities available as emergency medical facilities and made all non-cloistered nuns and sisters available to serve as nurses. There were three hospitals already run by religious orders and many nuns who were trained as nurses, but most of the other religious communities were teaching orders, but they all pitched in to help. Over the course of the epidemic, more than 2,000 religious women served as nurses in Philadelphia. Remarkable to think that there were 2,000 nuns in Philadelphia. And there were actually a thousand more nuns, but they were either cloistered or for one reason or another not able to help. Yeah, and the sisters had a dramatic impact on the care rendered. Many hospitals suddenly had help and help of the best sort. Women religious who had taken a vow of self-sacrifice and love. The ones already trained as nurses stepped right into those roles. Those not trained as nurses could mix medications and take temperatures, clean things, and help in other bedside ways. 
Many patients credited the nuns for helping them pull through. The medical staff talked about the change in the feel of the hospitals with the sisters on the job. Right, and the secular authorities noted everything, too. The Pennsylvania Department of Health said that, quote, without the services rendered by these good women, many additional lives would have been sacrificed, unquote. The mayor of Philadelphia was only slightly less effusive. He said, quote, I have never seen a greater demonstration of real charity or self-sacrifice than has been given by the sisters in their nursing of the sick, unquote. But the positive effect wasn't just due to the work that the sisters did in the hospitals. They also made a huge impact making house calls. Yes, and it was so important. Sisters would knock on doors, especially in the poorer areas of town, and ask if there were any sick persons in the house. If there were, they would do what they could. Sometimes an entire family was sick in bed. The sisters would go in, clean the house, care for the sick, feed them, and help them in any way they could. In one such house where the family was not Catholic, The sisters had been requested to visit an employee by a well-known businessman. A young boy opened the door just a crack and said that everyone in the house was sick. The sisters reassured him they were there to help. They went in and they did their thing. One of the young sons asked why they were dressed in those funny clothes. When the sisters explained, he said, you're Catholics, aren't you? Well, Catholics are the best anyhow. That whole family recovered. And possibly converted, or at least that boy. Yeah, who knows? There were many stories of actual conversions, such as the story of a poor non-Catholic mother who had just given birth and whose six other children were all sick. Two sisters took charge of cleaning the house, but unfortunately had no supplies to give until one of the sisters' own mother brought everything they needed. In this family, all of the children except one recovered, and the mother began instruction to enter the church. There were also many baptisms conducted by those nuns since the need was so extreme and the danger of death so real. And it wasn't just the nuns doing baptisms. Non-nun nurses asked the nuns to teach them how to do baptisms since they knew they would be in situations of imminent death with no priest nearby. In one instance, a doctor told a nurse that a baby had just been born and that they should go baptize it. But since the baby was not in danger of death, the sisters declined. The doctor asked why and seemed genuinely appreciative of the explanation given. In another episode, a girl of about 10 was dying. The sister asked her if she believed in God. The girl answered, no. So the sister spoke to the girl about God, and after a time, the girl asked, do you believe that? When the sister said that she did, the young girl replied, then I believe it too. And the sister gave her conditional baptism. One of my favorite stories from this is about a sister who had to improvise to get both of her duties done. At her convent, she was part of the contemplative group of sisters who stayed back to adore the Blessed Sacrament and cook for the active sisters who went out to serve as nurses. She was supposed to have help, but found herself left all alone. When it was time to start cooking, she had no other sisters to come take her place before the Blessed Sacrament. So she went out into the street, found a group of boys playing, corralled them, and brought them into the chapel and had them take over adoration so that she could cook. (laughs) Probably had a couple of priests come out of that. (laughs) Possibly. Actually, speaking of boys finding their vocations, it wasn't just the sisters who put in great service to the cause. St. Charles Borromeo Seminary on the outskirts of town had 50 seminarians volunteer for a very grim duty. Right. I mean, people were dying faster than they could be buried. The lone Morgan town was completely overwhelmed. A cold storage facility was pressed into service to preserve bodies. Many bodies simply rotted in the streets. Bodies were literally piling up in cemeteries, and families began arranging temporary burials of deceased family members until a more formal and permanent burial in a cemetery could happen. Also, there was a shortage of coffins in the city for two reasons. 
first because of how many people were dying, but also because so many coffins had been sent to Europe to bring back the remains of soldiers. The shortage was so severe that a streetcar company shifted its operation to produce more coffins. So these 50 seminarians volunteered to do something about this. They dug graves. It was an important thing to do, both because burying the bodies was necessary to help contain the spread of disease, but also because burying the dead is one of the corporal works of mercy. Those who have died deserve the dignity of burial, and these men stepped in to help. During that horrible October of 1918, the seminarians turned gravediggers took in an average of 200 bodies each day, giving the dignity of a proper burial to so many. Many were buried in mass graves. By the time it all ended in December of 1920, more than 16,000 Philadelphians died, with about 12,000 of those 16,000 happening in that late September to early November of 1918 window. Amazing. 12,000 dead in a five-week stretch, and so many of them because of that parade. Amazingly, while many nuns contracted the illness, only 23 died. Among those was Mother Marie Aloysius of the Sisters of the Holy Child Jesus, who had continued working in the hospital, despite her sickness, right up until the day before she died. The death toll in Philadelphia was, and still is, staggering, but it could have been so, so much worse if not for the sacrifice and service of the Catholic Church in that city. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.